Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Just a reminder that Unbecoming is on Twitter at UnbecomingPod and Instagram at UnbecomingPodcast. Our email address is unbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any comments or suggestions, please send them our way. If you're finding the podcast helpful in your own journey, you might consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. In other words, our email address. Thanks to all of you who've subscribed or followed us, to those who've written, and especially to those who've decided to support us. Next month will be our first anniversary, and I have the sense that we are building a community. This is the second episode on the subject of apology. If you didn't hear the first episode, you'd probably benefit from listening to that first. I'm going to provide a few reminders in a moment, but hearing the episode will probably be better than relying on my summary. I titled the episodes How to Avoid Apologizing, a bit tongue-in-cheek, since I find that many apologies turn out not to be really apologies at all. Bad apologies usually make a bad situation even worse. As I mentioned in the previous episode, the original meaning of apology, apologia, was a robust defense of oneself, which is why the discipline apologetics exists. Apologetics in the Christian world is about defending the truth of Christianity. But then the meaning of the term changed around the end of the 16th century. The first recorded use of apology to mean something like an admission of guilt and a sense of remorse is first found in Shakespeare in 1597. Supposedly, that marks a change in the meaning of the term. Though, interestingly enough, Shakespeare used the term in 1598, in other words, a year later, in its original sense. What I argued in the previous episode is that these two senses have been mixed together ever since. But here's the thing. I've studied all the major sources on apology, and there isn't a single one that takes that point of view. By the way, there isn't that much on apology. Very little has been written on it. Instead, they often mention that a defense of oneself was the old meaning, provide a little context to explain its original meaning, and then go on to study the main issue. In other words, there's not anyone out there saying what I'm saying, namely that these two senses of apology have gotten mixed together, and it's precisely this that explains why so many apologies end up sounding really horrible. But I think that's the best way to understand our current situation, and also another reason to listen to the podcast. You'll learn things here that you won't learn anywhere else. To recap, I defined apology in three senses. The first one is apologia, that you know, robust defense, you know, basically saying, I, you know, I'm not wrong, I didn't do anything wrong. Uh, A2 is exactly the opposite, uh, an expression of guilt and remorse. I, yes, I'm wrong, uh, and I'm very sorry that I did this. A3 is a poor excuse for the real thing. In a nutshell, I've suggested that many apologies sound too much like the A1 or classic version, even though they may have certain features that will make them sound like the A2 or current idea of guilt and remorse. I've also suggested that a successful apology needs five elements, maybe not all of these five, and certainly not necessarily all at one time. But I think this is kind of the things you need in order to have an apology. So number one is understanding what one's done uh, that's wrong. And 
we end up spending a good deal of time on that simply because that's that's actually a pretty big part of making a good apology. And then number two, feeling a genuine sense of remorse. You're really sorry for what you've done. Using a set of words, number three, using a set of words or phrases that communicates one sense of guilt and remorse. And then number four, convincing the other person that one truly understands one guilt and is remorseful for having done the wrong thing. Restoring the relationship is number five, which means that the injured party accepts the apology. In order to connect this episode with the previous episode, I'm going to repeat the the last paragraph. Here goes. It should be clear by now that I think understanding exactly what one has done is often not as simple as it might first appear. But I want to link the admission, I was wrong, to another admission. As I've been working on the difficulties of apologizing, I remembered a podcast of Freakonomics called The Three Hardest Words in the English Language. According to them, those words are not, I am sorry, but I don't know. The podcast and chapter from the book, Think Like a Freak, of the same name, begins by citing a study of British schoolchildren who told a short story and then asked four questions. The first two questions are ones that the short story answers, but the next two aren't. Despite that, 76% of the children gave yes or no answers to the questions that had no answer. The authors go on to point out that this tendency persists into adulthood. As an example, they point out that people who really are experts in regard to certain sorts of things often overestimate their abilities in areas that they don't know that much about. Academics are, alas, uh, very good examples of this. Their conclusion is that the problem is dogmatism, but they don't seem to realize that this problem had already been identified by Socrates, who often interacts with people who claim to know but don't. The dialogue Euthyphro is a really good example of that, short dialogue. In contrast, Socrates often says that he doesn't know, and the resulting Socratic doctrine of ignorance is the idea that If you're going to learn anything, you have to first admit you don't know. I've not seen a study on this, but I would venture to say that men are less likely than women to say, I don't know, in the same way that they're much less likely to ask for directions, which is another way of saying, of course, I don't know. As awkward as it can be to say, I'm sorry, it can be just as awkward to say, I don't know. One of the authors of the Freakonomics books, an economist at the University of Chicago, says that given the popularity of these books, he's often invited to give advice to companies. Here's how he puts it. I could count on one hand the number of occasions in which someone in a company, in front of their boss, on a question that they might possibly have ever been expected to know the answer, has said, I don't know. Within the business world, there's a general view that your job is to be an expert, and no matter how much you have to fake or how much you are making it up, that you just should give an answer and hope for the best afterwards. He does not say anything regarding gender, but given that company leadership is still predominantly male, he doesn't really need to. So, how does this connect with apologizing? In a study designed to answer the question of whether women apologize more frequently than men, Corina Schumann claims that her research shows that women do apologize more than men. But does this mean that men try to avoid apologizing more than women? From her research, she concludes that the reason for this difference is not an unwillingness to apologize on the part of men. 
Rather, she claims that women have, and now I'm quoting, a lower threshold for what constitutes offensive behavior. If she's right about that, and I'm inclined to think she is, then it may explain why my friend, who is a woman, felt the need to apologize to me for something that I didn't think, as a man, merited an apology. While I generally resist claims like all men or all women are blah, 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 such may be true as a kind of generality or tendency. In addition to this claim, it's also helpful to consider what Deborah Tannen says regarding apologies. Women tend to focus more on the question, is this conversation bringing us closer or pushing us farther apart? Men, on the other hand, tend to focus more on the question, is this conversation putting me in a one-up or a one-down position? For many men, to apologize is to take a one-down position. That would mean they would want to avoid apologizing. But what she goes on to say is even more insightful. The socialization of boys teaches them to avoid that posture as it could be exploited by an opponent in the future. That fear is well-founded, as some people use the apology as a way to humiliate an adversary. Further, there's even research that shows that men, when given large quantities of testosterone, are much more likely to be unwilling to admit they're wrong, as opposed to the control group that received a placebo. Here we come to a point that I can only mention, but it is a very important point. From even this small sampling, it should be clear that there are gender differences in apologizing. What counts as an adequate apology and when one is called for. Alas, this is one of those cases where the assumed neutral position of the cisgendered, straight, white, Caucasian male may not be neutral at all. If men and women differ in terms of their expectations regarding apologies, there's good reason to think that different cultures and religions also differ. That's not something that I can take up here in a serious way. But even in the relatively scant literature on apology, it becomes clear that there really are differences in terms of cultures. For our purposes here, though, it is enough to see that there are potentially two ways in which one could be humiliated. I am wrong is one, and the other is I don't know. If one is going to understand what one has done and how it affected the other person, then it may first require that one admits that one does not truly understand. Of course, even to make such an admission is going to require that one already has a sense of what the wrong was. After all, the people who've harmed you and are oblivious to that are never going to be asking for your help in understanding their offenses. But here's where things become difficult from the other direction. Unfortunately, in such a case, the person who has been hurt needs to meet the offender and at least be willing to voice what makes the offense particularly offensive. That's probably going to be a bit awkward. Indeed, one might want to insist that until they've figured out what they've done, they should simply go away. But the thing is this. If the goal of apologizing is to restore a relationship, perhaps not in every case, but generally, then the offended one may need to help the other person out. Otherwise, the offending party may not really know what he or she is apologizing for. Thus, even before a proper apology can take place, one must have a reasonably good idea, not just of what one's 
action is, as in I did X, but also how it affected the person to whom it's done. In doing X, I brought about condition Y. But to get to that point, one has to be willing to admit that one does not fully understand. In this respect, it is worth returning to the children in the study mentioned above. Once they were told that I don't know was a perfectly acceptable answer, they did just fine. I don't want to sound quite as sanguine about apologies as that, but I think an admission not merely of guilt, but of a lack of true understanding of the full impact that wrong has done may allow for an apology to be eventually successful. Otherwise, I worry that people on both sides will simply have to remain ignorant of the other person's perspective, which means that no real apology, and as I will argue later, no real forgiveness is really possible. Let's move to the second aspect, which is feeling a genuine sense of remorse. Clearly, this requirement is closely tied to the previous one. One would think that if one understands the gravity of one's own action, remorse will likely follow. That may not always be true. Yet, if one is going to achieve anything like remorse, then surely understanding what one has done is going to be a key element. Now, I want to turn here to the problem of time. Consider the apology given by Harvey Weinstein. The first lines go as follows. I came of age in the 60s and 70s when all the rules about behavior in workplaces were different. That was the culture then. I have since learned it's not an excuse in the office or out of it. Before saying anything else about Weinstein's apology, in air quotes, it should be clear that in one important respect, what he says is simply false. To say that the rules were different back then and that somehow this absolves one from guilt is somewhat like saying that prior to the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, it was okay to own slaves. Yes, it was legally okay, at least in certain states, but it was still morally objectionable. But Weinstein is right that the culture of that day unfortunately allowed for many things done by white men to go unchecked and unchallenged. Sexual harassment is just one of them. Racism is another. Unfortunately, if one looks at these apologies by sexual harassers, this theme of not realizing the gravity of the wrong at the time is all too common. In his apology, Charlie Rose says, I always felt that I was pursuing shared feelings, even though I now realize I was mistaken. L. Franken says, I've told and written a lot of jokes that I once thought were funny, but later came to realize were just plain offensive. There's more than one way to respond to such claims. One is simply to discount them as having been written by an anonymous publicist and so not constituting anything like a real apology. Another is to say that they are purely disingenuous. In other words, they knew what they were doing all along, but now that the allegations have become public, they are using the I didn't know defense because it's a little less painful than saying I was wrong. As I noted earlier, one can be culpably ignorant. It seems very hard to say that they simply didn't know any better, though that excuse cannot, sadly enough, be dismissed out of hand, though one can still say that they were culpably ignorant. But let's turn this claim around and look at it from another angle. I've learned over the years that I'm a slow emotional processor. Someone might say something offensive to me, and it might be over time, a few hours a day, a week, a year, that I came to understand the gravity of the offense. I remember someone apologizing, or the closest thing to it without actually being a real apology, and I said something like, oh, that's okay. It was only months later, when I was in therapy, 
that I was able to process the profound damage that had been done to me by this person. I suspect that I still don't fully understand how much that harm has influenced the course of my life and how much it continues to do so now. Without justifying Weinstein, Rose, and Franken, I wonder if they might be getting at something significant here. If I, as the wrong person, am not always able to judge in the moment the real extent of the wrong, it stands to reason that the person who wronged me may not either. I'm not saying that back at that time I was not actually and fully wronged. It's merely to say that it took a while to figure out just how bad it actually was. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That comes from uh, Ephesians 4.26. That's probably good general advice. But the reality is many situations will require some time for both you and the person you have wronged to understand exactly what's happened. We noted earlier that A2 apologies can go wrong by slipping into A1 apologies. In other words, an apology that's supposed to be about you admitting your guilt and showing your remorse turns into one in which you sound like you're defending yourself. Weinstein, Rosen, and Franken all give examples of this. If you examine their complete apologies, you will see that Weinstein's apology is probably the worst, and Franken's is the best of the three. That is, Franken goes the furthest towards an actual apology. But note that so-called apologies are often really just explanations for why what one has done is excusable. One of the more memorable explanations is that of Dick Army. He referred to his congressional colleague Barney Frank by a word close to Frank, but a slur used against gay people. In his prepared statement, he says, The media reporting this as if it were intentional, and it was not. It was not an attack. It was not even a Freudian slip. Then, in speaking with the press, he says, I do not want Barney Frank to believe for a moment I would use a slur against him. I had trouble with alliteration. I was stumbling, mumbling. It was a mispronunciation. As an explanation, of course, this is really difficult to believe. But much more important, an explanation, even if that were believable, is not the same as an apology. I didn't mean to say that may be completely true. I was having a bad day may also be completely true. But these are attempts at defense. Further, in most cases, these factors might be appropriate to introduce after you've made an actual apology, rather than before or in place of an apology. Now, there's another obstacle to getting to the place of remorse and thus avoiding apologizing. It's what Nietzsche calls lying to oneself. Here's what he says. I call a lie wanting not to see something one does see wanting not to see something as one sees it. Whether the lie takes place before witnesses or without witnesses is of no consequence. The most common lie is the lie one tells to oneself. Lying to others is relatively the exception. This is, I think, one of the most profound things that Nietzsche ever says. But if he is correct about this, then this means that we are often he probably would say always, telling ourselves stories about ourselves that make us look better than we really are. Rather than admitting that we are considerably less morally pure than we think, we come up with defenses for our shortcomings or reinterpretations of them to make us look better. But as long as one is in this state, one is unable to feel remorse that is appropriate to the offense. 
Another way of making this point is to go back to the apology by Weinstein. When he tries to excuse himself by saying that the rules were different back then, it's pretty easy to see that he is wrong. But my point here is not that Weinstein simply doesn't see what he's done in the same way, but that all of us are in the business of trying to make our lives seem better than they are. Since it's so blatant, Weinstein's attempt at this is completely transparent. In one important sense, then, the kinds of lying to ourselves that we should worry most are the ones that are so subtle that we don't even see them. One of the best stories in the Hebrew Bible of remorse is that of David. But note how he gets to this point. Rather than confronting David with his sin, the prophet Nathan tells him a story about a poor man whose lamb is taken by a rich man to feed a guest. We are told that David's anger was greatly kindled against the rich man. He says to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You may know what comes next. Nathan says, You are the man. The brilliance of Nathan is that he achieved the result of remorse by getting David to put himself in the place of the other person. Perhaps David would have had the same level of remorse if Nathan had simply said, you have sinned, but I doubt it. Often accusations do not produce remorse. Instead, they produce anger and make one prone to apologizing in the sense of apologia. In short, they make one defensive. But as long as one is apologizing in this sense, one cannot do so in the sense of repentance. Here I think we have to say a little bit about the issue of metanoia. I'm a philosopher rather than an exegete, so perhaps I shouldn't be treading into this issue. But from what I can see, there is an interesting debate about whether the word repentance is the proper English equivalent of metanoia. Here's the problem. As a transitive verb, repent includes the meaning to feel contrition or regret for an action, fault, or sin. As an intransitive verb, it can mean that, for instance, feel contrition or regret for something one has done or admitted to do. But it can also go further in the sense of showing sincere remorse and undertaking to reform in the future. Two questions arise here. On the one hand, does metanoia involve anything like shame or regret? Or is it instead a positive, forward-looking conception? On the other hand, does repentance necessarily require that one live differently, or could one just regret something and not change one's life at all? Although the word literally means change of mind, the phenomenon that metanoia is attempting to describe is much more foundational. The notion of conversion in Christianity that comes from metanoia is that of a fundamental reorientation of the self. It is nothing short of a movement in which we become different persons and thus die to self. Something like this idea of conversion is to be found in ancient philosophy. Pierre Hadot reminds us of the prominent place that ascesis played in ancient philosophy. While the term ascesis is often rendered as asceticism, it's better rendered as spiritual exercise that concern both body and soul. They are designed so that, and here I'm quoting Hadot, we let ourselves be changed in our point of view, attitudes, and convictions. This means that we must dialogue with ourselves, hence do a battle with ourselves. 
According to Hadot, the goal of ascasis is to bring about a conversion which turns our entire life upside down, changing the life of the person who goes through it. It would seem, then, that metanoia and ascasis end up being remarkably similar, with at least one important caveat. In the Christian tradition, metanoia is not something that we can accomplish by ourselves. Of course, exactly how one works this out is going to depend on one's theology. Still, getting to the place of truly feeling remorse may be something that has to happen to you, and it may not be something that one simply magically produces. This is why it's appropriate for Hadot to say that we let ourselves be changed. Whether metanoia contains both the idea of remorse and intention to change one's life is a question that I will leave to the exegetes. For our purposes here, an apology requires both. Now, we need to move on to the third aspect, that is using a set of words or phrases that communicate one's sense of guilt and remorse. We've already seen that the English word apology is double-sided in an unfortunate way. What's interesting is that other languages have the sense of guilt already baked into the very language of apology itself. The German term Entschuldigung literally means something like unguilting. Simply in saying this word, one admits that one has done something wrong. It's the same thing with Dutch. If I say, I'm asking you to do something like take away my guilt. The Dutch also say, which is idiomatic since it means something like, don't take me for evil, but a little translation of that doesn't really work. Of course, both languages have the similar sayings that we have in English. In Dutch, it's het speet me, and in German, it's es tut mir leid. One says in French, je suis désolé. But those phrases are much more common in those languages than something like, it pains me that I wronged you, would be in English. We, we don't really talk like that. The phrase, I'm sorry, is in itself not always clear, since it can simply mean, I have sorrow regarding something or other, rather than, I have sorrow because I did something or other. It could mean that one sympathizes with the other person, as in, I'm sorry for your loss. It can also mean that one is expressing remorse. I'm sorry that I did it. Usually the context makes clear which is which, but at the end, being sorry is somewhat ambiguous, since one might simply be sorry that one got caught. Elton John may think that sorry seems to be the hardest word, but I think the clearest expression of one's guilt is simply, I was wrong. If this is accompanied by a genuine expression of sorrow and remorse, then that seems to be about as much as you can do. I don't mean to suggest that merely because German and Dutch have words for apology that have the idea of guilt built in, that therefore speakers of such languages necessarily are admitting their guilt. After all, if someone says, Entschuldigung Sie bitte, and then proceeds to ask for your directions, that's unlikely to be an admission of guilt for not knowing how to get there. It is, however, an acknowledgement that in asking, the person recognizes that you are being disturbed in some way, so it is a kind of apology. In this respect, the word pardon in English is the closest thing we have to a word that can be used for an apology that includes a conception of guilt. Oddly enough, I beg your pardon, or simply pardon, when one hasn't understood what someone is saying, are very weak expressions. 
Someone who has hurt you deeply, who apologizes by saying, I beg your pardon, has just hurt you even more. Further, in the case of begging someone's pardon, it can just as well be an accusation. When someone says something offensive and one responds indignantly, I beg your pardon, it really means you are the one who should be begging my pardon. At this point, I'm not really sure exactly what locutions need to be made in order to lead to a successful apology. Either I'm sorry or I apologize on its own will likely not be sufficient, except for very minor offenses. Moreover, neither phrase absolutely needs to, to be used, so neither is a necessary condition. If you establish your guilt and your desire to have the relationship with the other person restored, that may be sufficient. Depending on the level of your guilt, the person wronged may need to hear you say this in long form. One sentence may not be enough. The person wrong may need to hear how much it truly pains you and may even use the length of the apology as a condition for its acceptance. A small offense only requires a short apology. A large offense may require a written letter of some length to be sufficient. In Psalm 51, David speaks of his transgressions, iniquity, and sin. In saying, create in me a clean heart, he seems to be asking both for forgiveness and also for a different future. Successful apologies depend not merely on the wrongdoer, but on the person who's been wronged. This can be worked out in various ways. For instance, if in the heat of the moment a parent says, apologize to your brother, most likely one is not going to get anything that sounds much like a real apology. It's probably going to be, I'm sorry. And then the parent has to add, say it like you mean it. Perhaps such forced apologies develop us in such a way that over time we come to see on our own when they're necessary. But at least on their own, they aren't very effective. Similarly, if someone says, I demand an apology, the resulting apology is probably not going to be all that heartfelt. It will most assuredly be a pro forma kind of apology. Of course, in some cases, the wrong person simply wants to see the wrongdoer be uncomfortable for a while. One would like to think that the person wrong, seeing how bad it is to be wrong, would simply like to see the other person remorseful. But apologies can be, as Tannen mentioned, opportunities to twist the knife. The victim may not even want to accept your apology for a while, a day, a week, a month, all the while knowing that you're suffering inside. That may be the intent. In such a case, the victim may not even care if you're truly remorseful and is quite content to make you suffer. All right, now we come to the fourth condition, convincing the other person that one truly understands one's guilt and is remorseful. Let's say that you're at the place where you more or less understand your guilt and are experiencing remorse. As with so much about human interaction, how one says something, not just the words used, but the accompanying sense of being genuine, are crucial to a successful apology. Many of the apologies we've discussed simply don't sound genuine. They may have said some of the right things, but the impression left is less one of remorse than of excuse. In poking around on the internet, I've come across a marketing guy who's come up with a list of requirements for a company to apologize for its actions. The first two of this are feel the pain and mean it. Of course, it's hard to put the concepts marketing and sincerity together. There seemed to be something like a performative contradiction here. 
Yet he goes on to say something even more interesting. He insists that, quote, an apology can't have ulterior motives or be a means to an end. That sounds right. However, then he explains that the Michigan University Health System experienced a 50% decrease in lawsuits when doctors were allowed to apologize to patients for mistakes made. He qualifies this, though, by saying that if another institution were to adopt this policy for the specific purpose of reducing malpractice lawsuits, you can bet that the lawsuits would actually increase. He insists that in apologies, one has to really mean it. And on this point, I think we can all agree. What's considerably less clear is that doctors in Michigan are actually making true apologies and meaning it. Yet isn't the problem here that our motives are never perfectly clear? If I am simply apologizing because I want to get over something or move on, then that doesn't seem much like an apology. I don't think genuine forgiveness is simply moving on either, which we'll talk about next week. The danger in such a case is that the apology to the other person ends up being more about me. I may simply want to cleanse myself or to get over something. But of course, one's motivations may not be perfectly clear to the person making the apology. Moreover, I don't think that human motivation is ever perfectly pure. So one might well apologize because one is actually sorry for one's actions, but still also realizing that apologizing is the shrewd thing to do. I suspect that the Michigan doctors may have motivations to keep from being sued. They would be highly unusual human beings if they didn't. But they may be generally concerned enough for their patients and think they deserve to know the truth. For an apology like that, it might be good enough. Finally, restoring the relationship. To be successful, apologies need to be accepted and the relationship restored. Yet the person who has wronged another, while able to do quite a lot to get to that point of a relationship restored, only has so much power to make this happen. One of the aspects of a proper expression of one's guilt and remorse is the ability to convince the hearer that what has happened will not happen in the future. One way of doing this is to say, either literally or in effect, this is not who I am. If you look at our other interactions, this is not how they've gone. So an important part of an apology is establishing the intent to be a different person from the one who did the wrong thing. For this to be effective, though, those previous interactions need to have been largely unlike this one. If not, it may simply be one more instance of what the other perceives as a tendency, demonstrated in actions, toward not taking the other seriously or treating him or her hurtfully. If such is the case, then the apology may well turn not into not merely an apology for a specific action, but for a way of being. One would then need to convince the other of having had or being in the midst of a personal metanoia. In such a case, one does not intend such behavior to be the norm in the future, as in, this is not the kind of person I intend or want to be. In such cases, the acceptance of apology may be provisional along these lines. Okay, so you say you're going to be different. Well, I'll accept the apology enough to see if your future life shows that you've changed. I'll be watching. Apologies that turn out to be genuine or accepted may actually bring people more closely together than they were before. One might put this as follows. As long as I have not wronged you, 
We haven't spent enough time together. Our relationship is too superficial. You can hope that in future times I'll be good. Once I've wronged you, but have also shown you that I am as least willing to walk the hard road of apologies, you may be more willing to trust me in the future. Certainly you're not going to trust me to be perfect. I've already demonstrated that such a hope is utterly unfounded. But perhaps you can trust me enough to care and be aware enough to apologize, hopefully before you need to ask. That's all for today's episode. Next week we'll be considering forgiveness. This is another one of those things that you think you understand, but when you start thinking about it, you realize that it's really complicated. If you found today's episode helpful or interesting, please do consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both those is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you join us for the next episode.